have you. Yeah, good to, yeah. Good to have Eli here. Peter, I see you over there. Yeah, you, look, you look handsome, you know. I don't think it's anything to do with you, though. I think the person next to you makes you look more handsome. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Hey, uh, let's stand and open our Bibles. Let's open to First uh, Peter chapter 1. I just love that song, uh, like a garden, let your words uh, begin to grow. And that is our prayer here, right, is that the word of God begins to grow. Uh, none of us here are standing here in perfection, right? So, uh, you know, we are being sanctified, but as we open the word of God, it grows in our life and it changes us. And I love the fact that that's what God's word does. So, I mean, you know, I don't have to stand here and deliver a good message, actually. All I have to do is present the Word of God because the Word of God is what's going to make the difference in your life. And if you don't have the Word of God, like how much counseling and, you know, all the good movies or all the good podcasts, it doesn't make a difference unless you have the Word of God in your soul. So let's let that happen today. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 1, it's going to be a little strange. We're going to start in verses 6 through 8, okay? So in this, you greatly rejoice. I love that word rejoice. That means to like bounce, actually. That's what the word, bounce with joy, that's what it means. You know, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that by the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory in the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though you, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with, exe- with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So, Heavenly Father, we uh, give you the rest of the service. We thank you for what you have done, and we pray that you will continue to move. Open up the word of God to us. Teach us to listen uh, for that still, small voice. Teach us to hear that rhema that you would have us to hear tonight. We just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You know, I was thinking today uh, a lot about what's going on in our world and actually in our lives. Um, I love this verse because it talks about, and I like the way the New King James says it. It says, you have been grieved by various trials. <laughs> uh, how many of you understand what that means, being grieved by various trials? You know, I look at my life, I could, um, you know, think about what's happening in life and in the world, and in our lives, there are a lot of problems, and uh, we could present the question, like, in the midst of our problems, you know, how do I retain my joy? You know, because this idea of joy in my life is very, very important, because we can stand here today, and we've, we've been in this church plant, actually, now for... You know, I guess seven, eight months now. And, uh, you know, and there is an excitement because it's something new. You know, this is what I see on, on, on the mission field. We got into China and we were excited, uh, but the excitement wore off very quickly. And it can happen here, but, you know, what is my life with Christ based on? Where is my joy sourced? 
And that is what Peter is talking about here in this life. Like, where is my joy? Where is my joy? And I was thinking about it this way. I'm just going to read what I wrote. There can be a lot of talk about the conditions of my life. Now listen to this. There are three things that I believe that my joy is based on. The conditions of my life and what God wants to give me and my faith. I think a lot of believers are basing their Christianity on those three things. The condition of my life. If the conditions of my life are, are favorable, then there is joy. Then there is a, a, a need for me to rejoice, greatly rejoice, to bounce and be excited. Or what God is giving me. Or actually the condition of my faith. But I was thinking about this. And in this verse and who Peter is talking to, he is talking to a group of people who are not experiencing conditions that are favorable in their life, but actually they're experiencing conditions that are favorable in their soul. And here's the amazing thing is like in our lives, we are not looking to what God is doing on the outside, but we are looking what God is doing on the inside. So in the face of seemingly negative conditions, what is happening is that my soul is rejoicing. And I like this slide. It says, the result of this is the fact that faith is produced. Through this rejoicing, through this joy and the growth of my soul, what happens is that faith is produced, not faith is producing something. You know, because, I, you know, I, I think like we could begin to have this idea like in our life that faith is producing something and because of what it produces, then therefore I am having joy in my life. But that's not what we read here and we're going to see that. That actually what God is producing in my soul in the midst of a negative circumstance is what produces faith. So each one of us is standing here today, and we could stand here and we could say that we are without excuse for having joy. Because it's not based on my lifestyle. It's not based on who I am, but it's based on what God is doing in your hearts. And then faith is produced, and I can have joy. See, if, if this is what is amazing. When I was living in China, and we were seeing these, uh, these young people and they were poor, but they believed in Jesus, and they had nothing. And I saw them make great decisions for God. I mean, to me, it was the most beautiful thing. And they had so much joy, and they had so little. And I was thinking, if my gospel was what my faith produces in my life, and then I have joy, then I have an advantage being an American. Because I can produce so much in my life. I mean, honestly, it's true. If I have a lack or if I have a need, what do I do? I fix the problem. That's what I do. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a New Englander. We pull up the bootstraps. We, you know, get a little dirty and we work harder. All right. There's no excuses. There's no food on the table. You get a third job. <laughs> There's no excuses in life. I mean, that's how I was taught. That's how we grow up. And but that is a privilege that we have here in America, that if there's a lack, then I can produce a result, and then, then I can have joy. But you know what? That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the economy of God. Because if that was the economy of God, then I would have an advantage, and everybody living in, in India, China, and Africa, and everybody who has 
uh, a lack or has a need, then they don't have that opportunity to experience the joy of Christ. Here's what joy means. I love these two definitions. It means this, the passion that is excited by an expectation of good. Meaning in my life, I am expecting something. Now, we're going to get here in a minute, but we're going to see like in my life, I can have an expectation from God, right? But I can have expectations somewhere else. And where my expectation is based will prove what my joy really is. Because you know what's interesting? In, in, in the Hebrew, this word picture, you know, for expectation means to bind together and to be entangled. So you could ask this question in your life, what is your expectation? What is binding me? What am I entangled in? Because if I am, my expectation or if I am entangled with what God is doing, then my expectation is from him and my joy is coming from God. But I can be entangled in other things, right? Um, you know, some of you guys that know your Bible well, I believe it's in Galatians, right? Where the Apostle Paul talks about the sin that so easily besets you. You guys remember that verse? That word that easily besets you, that word also means to be entangled in. You know, we don't really understand what this means, but, you know, back then they would run, they had these long kind of robes, right? And when you would run, you had to pick up your robe like this and then begin to run. But when there's something that easily besets you, it is like the robe that is causing you to trip and fall. It is a hindrance to you. There could be something in my life, and, you know, for, for argument's sake, it could be sin. Now, what that sin is, it could be big, right? Or it could be small. You know, sin is a big word that, you know, can sound like this big, ugly thing. But really, all sin is, it is something that is distracting me from God's kingdom. Okay? And, and, and it is said that anything without faith is sin. I mean, if you want to get, like, very serious about it, if I am functioning outside of faith, then maybe I'm living in sin. But, you know, but, but think about it this way. Like, there is something in my life that is entangling me, and that is my expectation. So that way, when I fall, what happens? My joy is gone. Here's another definition of joy. It means the rational prospect of possessing what we love. <laughs> I love that word rational. This is like, you know, did some studying and some, you know, I love diving into what words mean, but I love that word rational. It is a rational prospect of possessing what we love. You know, do we love God? I mean, just think about it this way. I mean, here he is saying that we should rejoice, greatly rejoice, meaning that in my life there should be joy in my life. Why? Because it is rational that I am going to possess the person of God. You know what? It is so amazing that in my life that this could be a rational thought being, versus being irrational. Because I am involved in a world where they are saying that Christianity is irrational. Where the idea of believing in God is irrational. Where following God is irrational. Where believing that Jesus died, rose, we're coming up on Easter, Jesus died, rose, and you know, was buried and rose again and was ascended, that's irrational. 
We talked to a guy who, who is a Christian, quote unquote, but he said, can we actually know that Jesus died? Can we actually know that he lived? Can we know that he rose from the dead? Can we know that he was ascended? I mean, for us, it is silly, but this is actually rational that I'm going to possess Jesus Christ. He's going to be mine. So you put these two words together, that I have an expectation from what? I have an expectation from God. I am binding myself. I am intertwining. You think about like a, a cord, like maybe one of these cords gets all tied up in knots. And it's hard to take it out and take it apart. That is my relationship with God. And I have this idea that I am going to possess, and it is rational, I'm going to possess what God is, what God has for me, the person of God. Let's turn our Bibles to Proverbs 11. This is an interesting verse. And it's just kind of going with this idea of what my desire or what is my expectation. Proverbs 11, starting in verse 23, it says, The desires of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Meaning, like the wicked people, if they have an expectation that is not from God, they are intertwining themselves. They are getting like kind of caught up with wrath. But for us, that word desire and you know expectation, they're the kind of the same word. So for us, we our expectation as righteous. Does that mean that we are righteous people? Yes. Yes and no. In our experience, sometimes. There is sin in our life. But we have put on the new man. We have put on the robes of righteousness. So God looks at us and says that we are righteous. So as righteous, as children of God, we begin to have our expectation from him. We are intertwining ourselves in who he is. If you jump up to verse 7 and verse 8, it says... When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish. <laughs> Why? Because their expectation is not from God. I mean, what is, you know, and the hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. Interesting verse, isn't it? You know, do you ever think, why does the wicked, when the wicked man dies, why does his expectation perish? His expectation was just in this life. Yeah, I mean, his expectation is here. Like, you know, we've heard it said many times when you, when you see a funeral procession, like how many U-Haul trailers is following the casket? <laughs> like there's none, right? Yeah, like they're not, be, I mean, I, actually, I work with a guy, and he's a mortician, and he says it's interesting what people bury with themselves, <laughs> but he says it's funny because it's just going to sit there and rot. You don't see these rich men taking their riches with them to the grave. So when a wicked man dies, it is also perishing with him because, you know, because why? Because it is sin. You know, this is why... In our lives, there are habits that are hard to get rid of because our expectation is in these things to give me joy. 
That is why in our lives addictions are hard to get rid of because it is in these addictions we believe that we will have joy. And you think about it. I mean, has anybody ever like, you know, yeah, anybody ever tried to untie knots in a yo-yo? <laughs> or how about a slinky? <laughs> I mean, these are silly examples, but it's true, right? It's very hard to take it apart. But when our expectation is in these things that are not eternal, these things are not eternal. They aren't designed to, to satisfy my soul. They aren't. But when our expectations are placed in these things, and when they fail us, what happens with our joy? It also fails. So that is why in my life, my expectation has to be something greater than things from these world, this world. You know, so here we are. We have this privilege in America where we can work and meet our needs. It's amazing, right? You, know, you can buy a bigger TV. You can buy a new you know, game system. You can buy a new car. You can, take care, you can go to the hospital and take care of your health problems. I mean, these things are awesome, and I love it. But you, you take all that away, and where is your joy? Where is your joy? You know, and this is what I love here about verse 6. Because verse 6 says what? It says, but in this greatly rejoice. What is Peter talking about? What in my life is causing me to dance? <laughs> what in my life is causing me to jump up and down in the midst of of my tribulation in the midst of my trouble and say, God, you are great. What is causing me to say like in the midst of that fiery furnace and that purification when there is so much pain in my heart, what is causing me to say, God, I love you. God, I'm excited. And what is causing me to have a smile on my face in the midst of all these things? Because that is to me is what is the most important. And Paul defines that. Let's go back up to starting in verse 3. He said, blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, listen to this, who according to his abundant mercy, stop right there. I mean, there's a lot that can be said in the after of those verses because in the after of those verses, verses 4 and 5, he is defining what God's abundant mercy has done. But here's the thing is this, because of God's abundant mercy, I can have an expectation of God. If it wasn't for God's abundant mercy, then I would have no expectation from God. And actually, I would be like other people worshiping other gods who are insufficient to meet my needs, my spiritual needs. They're insufficient to deliver me. And in those verses, it says to deliver for salvation. Like this insufficient for salvation. I mean, my soul is going to heaven. Why? Because of Christ's salvation and his great mercy. But there is more than that eternal salvation. There is that daily salvation. That is what is so important here in this verse. He's not only alluding to that once I'm a believer and I'm going to go to heaven. He's not only referring to that. But he is referring to that there is a continual deliverance in my life because of God's abundance. That word abundance means much or many. Much or many. 
you think about how much stuff you have, you know, like you could think about it. You know, Elias isn't in here. I could think about how many Legos he has. There it is, much. There is many. My toes know it. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you could think about these different things in your house. What is there too much of or what is there many of? Because what, what that means is that, that there is enough where you could get rid of some and not even notice that some is missing. Elias isn't here, so I can, you know say this, like there are times when some of his toys go missing in the garbage can. He doesn't notice it. Why? Because he has so much, so many. Don't tell him, guys, please. <laughs> you know, he has so much. He has... Hey, sit down, Gary. <laughs> he has so much. He has so many. That is like the life of God. There is so much. There is so much grace in his life that he can dispose of some and give us some of that grace. You know, that's interesting that grace and joy are actually connected. They're not, they're all, they're spelt very similarly, but they're also connected in my life. And this is what one scholar said. He said, joy is grace recognized. The reason why I have joy is because I've recognized God's grace in my life. I have, there is an abundance of of God's mercy and God's grace in my life, so therefore I can have joy. I love this because this idea of the abundance of God's mercy and grace is all throughout the Bible. It's not that we have taken, and we're talking about this this morning, it's not like we have taken one verse and we're talking about God's abundance of mercy from one verse and we're creating a whole doctrine. And when we talk about doctrine, doctrine, what that means is it's the way God thinks about an area. So we could talk about the doctrine of grace. So what we're talking about is we're looking at all of the verses in the Bible where God's grace is met, is, is mentioned. And we come up with an with a idea of what God means, for God's thought about this. So when we talk about God's abundant mercy and abundant grace, we are looking at where is that mentioned in the Bible? And then we can have a thought of what God says about it. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says that he is rich in mercy. It's the same word there, that he, there is enough of it. It is abounding in his life. It's not only in the New Testament. There's other verses too. But I love this verse in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. It says, but they refused to obey. And they were not, listen to this, they were not mindful of your wonders, that you did among them. That's the opposite of expectation of God, isn't it? Like when we have an expectation of God, what are we mindful of? We are mindful of what God is doing. There is joy in the grace of God in my life. It is amazing. I am mindful of that. I mean, have you stopped to think about what God has done in your life? You know, I was with some guys, you know, before church and having a cup of coffee and talking. And, you know, I don't cry often, you know, because, again, I'm from New England, you know. <laughs> but I was almost in tears just thinking about what God is doing. And I was being mindful of his wonders. But in Nehemiah chapter 9, he is saying that they were not mindful but they hardened their necks. They were stiff necks. 
and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. See, if my expectation is not from God, what am I doing? I'm, an appointing, an, I'm appointing a leader that is designed to bring me back into bondage. And I was, I was going to preach today on Galatians chapter 3. And it's the same thing. And he's saying, oh, foolish Galatians. How are you so soon removed from the grace of God? Is the grace of God in vain in your life? How can we be so soon removed? And we began in a certain way. Shouldn't we also finish that way? It's the same thing here. You know, that we could be, that we could appoint a leader in my life when there's an expectation that is not from God to heal my soul. When there's an expectation that is not from God to bring me joy. When there's an expectation in my life that is not from God to solve my problem, to fix my health, to fix my marriage, to fix this, to fix that. Because that is what salvation means. Salvation means that God has come and he has delivered me out of something and brought me into a place where I can feast. I like that word, feast. We met a guy named, uh, yeah, anyway, we met a guy yesterday at the cafe, and he kept using that word, feast. I'm feasting on the Lord. I'm feasting on the Lord. You know, I am feasting on the Lord today. I am feasting on God and you know, I don't want to go back to something to fix my life at the cost of it leading me back to bondage. Amen. You know, I, I'm not old, but I have served God long enough to know that it's too late to, to turn back for one. You know, like if I were to stop serving God now, and it's, you know, I just wasted like 20 years of my life, you know, wasted, you know. <laughs> I'm not turning my back on the Lord now, for one, because it doesn't make sense, and for two, because I don't want to be in bondage. I don't want to be in bondage. But listen to the rest of Nehemiah 9:17. But you are God. Ready, listen to this, ready to pardon gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. This is, I love the book of Nehemiah, one of my favorite Old Testament books, and I love this verse because it reveals to me the heart of God, that he is so abundant in something, that he is so abundant in kindness, he is so abundant in, in, in grace and mercy, he is slow to anger. He is ready to pardon. He is so abundant that he has the ability to not forsake me. <laughs> he has the ability to not forsake me. Because what I find myself in little ways, you know, in little ways what I find myself doing is that I begin to have an expectation that is not from God. I mean, you know, as a whole, maybe my expectation is from God. But maybe there are little areas in my life, and if I give those little areas continually to, to Satan and they're not given to God, then those little areas can grow. And I find myself intertwined. And what happens is that there's a habit that is harder and harder and harder to break. Not because of the lack of God's authority, 
But because of my bondage, because of my intertwining with sin, it has nothing to do with the lack of God's authority. Because we see here, let's uh, you know, continue reading First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. A living hope. That means we have a real expectation that is coming from God's abundant mercy. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. Now look at verse 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith. I was driving up with Pastor Gary because he talked about being kept by God, guarding your hearts from Proverbs. What? Proverbs 4. Yeah, I forgot. Proverbs 4, that we guard our hearts because out of it flows the issues of life. Here it is again that there is who are kept by the power of God through faith. Now, this is like an amazing verse because this word kept means that you have been kept and you continue to be kept. Or that word could also be changed to we are being guarded. This is a military term that God, that Peter is using to describe God's authority in my life to protect me from the wiles of the devil. To protect me from myself. To protect me from the old sin nature. To protect me from the world system. You know, it is God's job. It is God who is protecting me. You know, this is interesting because one scholar says that some people could look at it this way. Like, here I am. Here's my bubble. And God is this outside force that is coming in and doing the guarding. But that's not what he is saying. That's how some people perceive. Because look at that word. It says that you are kept by. That you are kept by. This is means something very intimate where not only is Christ on the outside, but he is actually in my life. It is coming from within and coming out protecting me. Because if it was out coming in, what that promotes and what that tells about God, that he is disconnected personally in my relationship and in my suffering. And that's not what we read about God, is it? He's personal. He's not disconnected. He's not an outside source coming in like a genie and solving my problem. That is not who God is. And that is sometimes how we approach him in our prayers. That is sometimes how we approach him in our joy. We, we approach him in a way where he is outside and, he, and, and we, are, we are going, hey, come and fix my problem. Come and fix my problem. Come and fix this. But that's not what it is. He is inside of us. And he is working from within without Let me just continue to look at this here. I'll, I'll just read what, the, what he says. He says, The power of God which guards the believer is no external force working upon him from without with mechanical necessity. Right? Like when you have a problem with your car, you take it to the mechanic and it gets fixed. But the spiritual power of God in which he lives, in whose spirit he is clothed, it comes down on and then dwells in him even as he is in it. 
Isn't that beautiful? So when we talk about the authority of God coming in and keeping my life, the power of God in my life, it is not an outside force. It is God who is, we are clothed. Put on the new man, it says, right, in the New Testament. Put on the new man. It also says that we should um, you know, put on the new man, that we are clothed with righteousness. It also says the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. It says that we are sealed with the Spirit. I mean, over and over and over again, the idea of the Holy Spirit that we see is that he is in us and he is with us. He is not outside acting upon us. So we are kept by the power of God. So when I look at my life and my trials and we say, but in this, like what is, what is Peter saying? He's saying, well, that God, the fact that God is the one who is keeping us in the midst of my trial, that causes me to rejoice. But it's interesting because that word is there through faith. That word there is through faith. So that means the measure of my faith will determine the authority that God has to protect me in my life? Is that what it means? No. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't mean that. That's why I first thought when I was reading it. I'm like, you know what? Well, let's dig in here. But you know what? The idea of faith this is, it is efficient cause. That's what it is in the Greek, which means that it is faith that is the agent that brings the thing into, the, into being or initiates a change. See, in my life, faith is the cause of God's power and authority in my life. So it's not that my faith, not my faith for change, see, it's not that I have faith for change. That's what some people do. They're in trouble, and what do they do? They have faith. They have hope. Not in God, but they have faith and hope that there's going to be change. So it is by my faith in God. So it is the object of my faith which determines my results. See, it is not that I have great faith, but it is in the object that I have faith. So if I begin to have the object of my faith be God versus, you know, whatever else you want to put in there. You know, whatever you do when you're, you know, depressed or upset or going through trouble. I'm not going to reveal any secrets of my own, okay? <laughs> because we all have our little... You know, thing, right? That helps us deal with stuff. But when the object of our faith is God, then what happens? Then it, then it initiates. It, it, it initiates the, the authority and the power of God to protect me. But when Nehemiah chapter 9, 17 was saying that at times in my life that I am so stiff-necked that I return myself to bondage, but God continues to be faithful despite my own decisions. Which is interesting, isn't it? We stand here and we say that we could understand that it's my faith that does something. And sometimes it is, right? That I have faith in God and then this is what God does. And I'm like, wow, it's amazing. I'm going to continue to have faith in God. You know, you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. How should, uh, how should the Israelites have responded in the wilderness? You know, miracle. There should have been joy and expectation in God. And you, you see it. Miriam was like dancing and had a little song and they were singing. And then next thing, you know, she's like accusing Moses of something, you know. Like, what the, what the heck? You know, where is your expectation? God, you came through. Well, it's amazing. But now I forget what you have done. Don't be 
forgetful of what God has done, what God is doing in your life. Because if you forget, then your expectation is easily distracted on something that is not from God. And that's why I find myself living in sin, living in habits, living in addictions. And I have no authority and I could be a believer and I'm sitting there and I know that I love God. I have all of this doctrine. I have all this doctrine. I have all this Bible in my heart and I find myself without authority. And I could say, why God, why God? Well, the reason why is because I have refused to submit to having God be my expectation. And every time there is a little, you know, situation in my life, I run back to this. And then I look up and say, God, what, what are you doing to me? And it's, it's not God, it is I am doing it to myself. And what I want to encourage you guys in these days is where is your joy? What is the object of your joy? And you know what? Let's have God's joy be in our life. You know, I like this other definition of joy. Joy is being properly aware of God's grace. Let's have our eyes be open to what God is doing. Let's not look like this. I'm not talking about this. Not the horizontal. Let's be aware of what God is doing. The vertical. Because you know what? Maybe God isn't doing something here. I mean, let's say that happens. Let's say, you know, there, there's five people in here. And you look this way. Oh, God's not doing anything. God's not doing anything. You know, on, on Thursday nights, I mean, Thursday night was amazing. Pastor, got a great message, great worship, you know, but there was only eight people here. But do you know what? I was looking at what God was doing. Come on. And I came in and I was discouraged. I'm saying, you know, I drove an hour and 15 minutes to come here. <laughs> and the coffee shop down the street is closed, so I have to eat, drink decaf coffee, you know. This is terrible, you know. Yeah, there, it is easy to look this way and be discouraged. You know, hey, look at the gas prices. Look at the housing costs. Look at the grocery bill. Look at, you know, the relationship problem. Look at, you know, look at my kids. You know, I can't control them. Look at, you know, my car and this situation. I mean, look at this. Look at this. No, no. We're not talking about being aware of God's grace this way. But being aware of what God is doing in our hearts. You know, and I, I see the amens and the head nods because what I know that God is doing something in your life. When you come here on Sunday, it's not the first time you've met God this week. Because if it was, you wouldn't be nodding your head. You'd be, you know... You would be nodding your head, actually. <laughs> this isn't the first time you've met God this week. Because God is bigger than these walls here. What I preach on Sunday, it should be what God is already speaking in your heart during the week. It shouldn't be, what happens here on the pulpit shouldn't be strange to you because God is already active in your life through that spirit that is living in you. So you're kept by something that is inside of you. You know, this week, whatever happens, you know, you could be on fire for God and jumping up for excitement. You know, Elias was doing a little Irish river dance during worship. I don't know where, you know, there's no Irish in him, but he's doing the Irish river dance. You know, but there should be joy what's happening. But, you know, maybe there's something to cause joy to be stolen from you. 
You know, maybe we'll talk about that next week. What in my life steals my joy? And it's not what you think it is. I think that it's my problems that steals the joy away. It's not. Some might think it's the devil that steals my joy. It's not. You know, maybe we'll talk about that next week. But for now, let's just think about, let's be aware of what God is doing. The big picture. Amen? Amen. All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word. And we... We want to begin. We want to be aware of what you are doing, God. We are excited not because of what's happening here, but but because of what's happening here. You know, we don't look horizontally and look at seeing who's here and count and say, "Well, I'm excited because they're here." No, I'm excited because the presence of God is here in the prayer, in the worship, in the message, in the fellowship. You know, at night when I go to bed, I can go to bed on a Sunday night with a smile on my face. Because, the, because I'm aware of God's grace in my life. And it's but in this, but in this I can greatly rejoice. And let there always be a confession of praise on my lips because of what God is doing. Let there always be like joy in my life because of what God is doing. But maybe we feel in some of our lives that God is not doing anything. It's like there is that stalemate in our life. But you know what? God is digging ditches. God is growing his word in your life. And you might not see it right now, but he is beginning to do it. And just wait and be patient and see what God is going to do. And Jesus, we thank you and pray for the rest of the the service, the, the worship, the fellowship, the food, whatever happens. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.